Whatever was gained, it wasn't worth the price that the men had paid to gain that advantage. It was no advantage to anybody. It was just sheer bloody murder. That's the only words you can use for it. Corporal Harry Shaw, 9th Battalion, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, The Somme, 2nd July, 1916. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 10, Psalm the Reckoning. Sorry for the recent radio silence. Reading, researching, and writing for this podcast is my very happy place, but two other uh, very happy events have overtaken much of my available time as of late. Two years ago, I started a total career change that was concluded this past summer when I was hired as a social studies teacher. Sure, that's a huge surprise to everyone out there. Um, But our school year just started at the beginning of September, so this new routine of uh, lesson plans and homework correction are keeping me pretty occupied. On top of that, I'm also working towards a master's degree in education, so the homework for that keeps me busy too. Yes, I'm burning both ends of the candle pretty much with a blowtorch right now. So there are a lot of good things happening, and they're all happening at the same time, but truly, I am blessed to have these opportunities. I'm uh, working out a rhythm of uh, prioritize and execute that gets my work done efficiently so I can spend time back in my happy place here. Uh, But in the meantime, thank you so much for your patience. I I greatly appreciate it. Okay, let's get back to our people on the song. When the 2nd of July, 1916 came, the British 4th Army tried to reset itself. Few people knew the full extent of the previous day's massive attacks and casualties. In the southern sectors past Fricourt, there was a feeling of success between that village and Montauban to the east. To the north of Fricourt, however, it was a catastrophically different story. The 2nd of July was, in comparison, a much quieter day on the Somme front than had been the case the previous eight days. That didn't mean the battle had gone on hold. In 13th Corps' sector at Bernafay Wood, to the east of Montauban, the Germans counterattacked twice in the early hours of the morning. They were blasted away by British shells. Both attacks failed. Free Corps was occupied in the early hours of the 2nd by men of the British 7th Division. The Germans had mostly pulled out after darkness fell on July 1st. By noon, the village was fully secured. Men of the 7th Lincolns then pushed beyond the village through Fricor Wood, but the Germans here went back to giving ground grudgingly. By nightfall, however, Fricor Wood had been taken and Tommies of the 7th Division had linked up with Tommies of the 17th Division to their left. On the afternoon of the 2nd and to the northwest of Fricor, 
the 9th Wiltshires and Corporal Shaw's 9th Royal Welsh Fusiliers assaulted and seized the ruins of La Boiselle. By nightfall, half of the village had been cleared of any remaining Germans. Bernafay Wood, Fricor, and La Boiselle were really just small local actions required for straightening the frontline trace. Elsewhere on the Somme front, little else was happening. Many British 4th Army units were reeling from the previous day's catastrophic losses. The men, in some cases, just trying to realize and accept what they had seen. It was otherwise fairly quiet on the 2nd of July. The German artillery behind the lines was inactive, no doubt cued by their enemy's lack of follow-up attacks. Rifle shots cracked, and occasional stutters of machine gun fire shattered the peace of another summer day, but north of Fricor and La Boiselle, that was all that happened. It was also weird. Famed British war poet and author Siegfried Sassoon wrote in his work Memoirs of an Infantry Officer that on the afternoon of the second, between the Fricor and Mamet sector, that he was, quote, now lying out in front of our trench in the long grass, basking in sunshine where yesterday there were bullets, end quote. He also noted that the ruins of Fricor were full of Tommies scouring for souvenirs, and that it was a, quote, queer feeling, seeing people moving about freely between here and Fricor, end quote. Here, of course, was the old British front line. The weirdness was no doubt compounded by the fact that at the northern limit of the attack front at Gomcourt, there was a tense truce that allowed the British to get out and grab some of their wounded amongst the appalling heaps of dead. What made it weird and wonderful was that it was the Germans who initiated the truce. They shot at anyone who carried a weapon, but unarmed men were free to search out and carry the wounded back to British Third Army trenches. British artillery shells impacting behind Goncourt later ended the truce prematurely. It was a day of reckoning as well. Decimated British units all along the attack line took stock of what men were left. Some units were so thoroughly shattered they were relieved by others. The work to bring in the wounded continued. British Red Cross men worked through the killing fields, attending to the wounded lying out there as best as they could. At Serre, even German medics gave aid to wounded Tommies before them, and then carried them back to their lines. Most of the time, getting the wounded back was done at great danger to the lives of those running out into no man's land, however and the cries of the wounded dropped off as many of them died in the summer sun from the inability to reach them. With the exception of Goncourt and Serre, the Germans weren't so generous with aid or truces. Opposite Serre, Private Reg Parker sought out his brother Willie in the battered remnants of the Sheffield Pals. His tale would end sadly, as so many others would. I kept trying to find out about my brother, he recounted later. He'd only come to the regiment a matter of days before the attack, and he couldn't have come at a worse time. I didn't have time to wangle him onto the transport, 
he was joined up with C Company and the City Battalion and didn't have time to pal up with any of them. So nobody knew him. I kept asking, but nobody knew what had happened to him. I never did find out what happened to my brother. He must have been blown to smithereens. We really cannot continue forward until we at least take a short look back. And that's the point of this episode here. Why was the 1st of July, 1916, such a staggering disaster for the British Army? We hear many reasons, and in the English-speaking world, the two reasons I've encountered most have been the inadequate artillery bombardment prior to 1 July, and the inflexible human wave tactics the Tommy infantry were forced to rely upon. But first and foremost, really, the reason the British 4th and 3rd armies took over 57,000 casualties on the first day of the Somme was the Germans. Remember them? They're the other guys on the other side of no man's land, behind the impossibly thick belts of barbed wire, who had spent over two years planning and digging in for just such a battle on the Somme. Two years planning and digging in. The 1st of July, 1916, was so costly in British soldiers' lives because of the Germans. As we discussed back in episode four of the podcast, Stahlhelm, the Tin Hat, and the Cascade Drian, part one, the German army in spring 1916 was arguably at the top of its game. In regards to the men of the German Second Army, many of these men had been stationed on the Somme since the front had stabilized in the fall of 1914. They knew all of the high ground. They had seized it and were now comfortably dug in on it. They knew all of the low ground too, and where the British were in that low ground. Particularly from Tietfel Spur, the Germans had eyes over all British trench lines north of the Somme. From the high ground, the Germans had taken the time to dig or start digging three deep trench line positions that made for some of the strongest defensive fronts the world had seen up to that point. They'd taken the time to dig deep dugouts to protect themselves. They'd sighted every machine gun sectors of fire, they'd stockpiled ammunition and grenades, and they drilled the machine gun teams over and over on running up the dugout stairs as soon as the enemy's trommel foyer ceased. These were professional, hardy, and experienced soldiers, and they were motivated to stop the enemy's assaults on their positions. They largely fought like lions on that first day. The training had kicked in despite losses and a thousand-year-long week of being pummeled by the enemy's guns. And here was the problem. There were too many of them left alive on the 1st of July. So here is where the inadequate artillery argument rightfully comes in. The week-long bombardment had produced an impossibly loud and thunderous pounding of the Picardy fields at the Somme. But as we discussed before in episode 5, the spectacular effects the shrapnel shells had on throwing plumes of dirt into the air did not mean they were in fact cutting much of the Germans' wire. Overall, 
what caused the inadequate preparatory artillery bombardment was what Peter Hart calls, quote, the British disease. Hubristic optimism based on overconfidence, end quote. For this, we must indeed now look Sir Douglas Haig and Sir Henry Rawlinson in the eyes. At Neuve Chapelle in March of 1915, Rawlinson had achieved the shell to trench length ratio he needed to win and to win overwhelmingly. Five artillery shells for every yard of enemy trench. It worked out to 300 pounds of explosive plowing, scouring, and scourging three feet or one meter of earth. In Rawlinson's original plan for the Somme, he had achieved the same ratio with 1,500 guns pounding a 20,000-yard front at a depth of some 1,250 yards. But then Haig doubled the attack depth to 2,500 yards, cutting the artillery density to half what it should be. And Rawlinson agreed to it in the end. Both men figured they must be good to go with all of the guns, howitzers, and shells they had. Of course, as we know, they were wrong. Very wrong. So this is where we get the hubristic optimism based on overconfidence idea. Haig was just off the mark on this plan, to put it lightly. But Rawlinson, the only guy on the scene who could have thrown cold water on Haig's ideas, folded, and acquiesced after a mild attempt at pushback. The British had 1,500 guns, many of them manned by inexperienced gun teams. Both the 18-pounder guns blasting the German wire entanglements and the 4.7-inchers aimed at German guns had a tendency to wear out their springs during long bombardments, and this meant the accuracy of the guns degraded over time. Couple that with eager but inexperienced gun crews and the chances of shells actually hitting their targets became questionable. On top of inexperienced gun crews and declining gun accuracy, add the fact that shell and fuse manufacturing technology were not at their peak during this time. A 6-inch shell's length could vary within a 4-inch range from shell to shell depending on who made it and this wreaked havoc with artillery ballistics and accuracy as well. Fuses screwed onto shells might come off in flight, or they might impact but not explode. Either way, the shells would land as duds, and thousands upon thousands of these duds remain in the Somme fields to this day. The British also fired the wrong type of round, as we previously discussed in episode 5 as well. Shrapnel shells were being used for wire cutting, and in most places their work was found alarmingly wanting. But shrapnel shells were being used because the British didn't yet have enough high-explosive shells, as their war economy was just coming fully online. By the way, the French found all of this appalling, as their factories had been cranking out HE shells for some time now. The 4th Army also just didn't have enough heavy guns to blast out the heavy shells 
that would properly devastate the German dugouts. As a result, far too many Germans survived the week-long torture to rise up out of the smoking earth with their machine guns. Raleigh had some 400 heavy artillery pieces at his disposal, but the French had over 100 more, and they had the necessary ammunition to go with it. French gunners largely swept away or buried the enemy soldiers opposite them on the southern sector of the Somme front. And where the British followed their lead in artillery tactics, they succeeded. Thus, we see why the British were only successful at Montauban and Mametz. Here, the artillery targeted the dugouts and with French assistance, knocked out German guns with effective counter-battery fire. Also, related to the artillery problem was the use of the creeping barrage. French used it and thus saw success. The British did not use it, citing the inexperience of their new gunners as the reason for non-implementation. This was another of the bigger reasons for the unsuccessful attacks on the 1st of July. The creeping barrage was a new tactic just coming into its own on the battlefield. But the French were using the creeping barrage successfully at Verdun, and their UK allies could have studied the opportunity much better. So instead of an admittedly stressful plan, requiring careful coordination and keeping the artillery just in front of the attacking infantry as they advanced, thus keeping the Germans' heads down until it was too late, the British instead used timed tables of lifts of the artillery prep that the infantry was now supposed to keep up with. Many British soldiers saw the barrage lifting off the German trenches far too early, giving the enemy enough time to scramble up their dugout steps in the race to the parapet. All of these factors combined together to ensure the artillery bombardment did not have the effect it was intended to have. The deadly inadequacy of the British artillery bombardment from the 24th of June to the 1st of July, coupled with the tenacious defense put up by the Germans after it, are why the British suffered 57,470 casualties on that first day of July in 1916. It is why all of the attacks north of Fricourt essentially failed. Another idea we have of the failure of the Somme attacks is that of the Tommies advancing in parade ground waves and being mown down in those waves while wearing sometimes up to 66 pounds of gear on their backs. This happened because their commanders thought the men of the new armies incapable of refined infantry tactics. We know this last point is not true. The overall education of the men of the new armies meant that with proper training, they could have handled the complex task of closely following a creeping barrage. They also had the unchecked enthusiasm to do it, and that cannot be discounted either. But let's take a brief look at this angle. Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson's book on Sir Henry Rawlinson, titled Command on the Western Front, shows that Raleigh did not control what tactics his attacking infantry should use when the time came. 
in a nod to decentralized command and empowering his subordinates, he left it all very vague. In May, he wrote as follows, Celerity of movement and the necessity of taking immediate and full advantage of the stunning effects of the bombardment. The assaulting troops must push forward at a steady pace in successive lines, each adding fresh impetus to the preceding line. It was left to corps and brigade commanders to determine the best method for assaulting the enemy's first trench line. And so there was actually a variety of actions taken by the Tommies to get across no man's land. Some battalions rushed the distance, running across to get to the German trenches. Others moved or attempted to move in columns that deployed into waves just meters away from the enemy's line. Still others assembled in no man's land as close to the enemy's trenches as the barrage would allow in order to minimize the distance they needed to travel. The men did indeed carry extraordinarily heavy and awkward loads on their backs, but it was only in Third Corps, opposite La Boiselle, where the men advanced at a slow walk. Third Corps suffered the most deaths on 1st of July as a result. So, it wasn't the infantry tactics, although here too, the British had a lot to learn from both the French and the Germans. Again, the evidence points to the inadequacy of the preparatory bombardment and the stink put up by the German Frontschwein when Tommy came knocking at his door. As we began this episode, on the 2nd of July, the British 4th Army was trying to reset itself. It was a daunting task as the scale of death and destruction around the men was just crushing. Quote, We literally couldn't walk along the trenches without unfortunately treading on dead bodies, German and British. The stench and the flies on those hot summer days were simply appalling. That was one of my most miserable memories of the psalm. But we had not to mind. Eventually, one just got over it, thought nothing of it. Dead bodies all over the place. We couldn't help it. We were alive, and that's what mattered. And being alive, we jolly well had to get on with it, and that's exactly what we did, recalled 2nd Lieutenant Montague Cleave of the 36th Siege Artillery Battery of the Royal Garrison Artillery. Few people knew the full extent of the previous day's massive attacks and casualties, and even the upper echelons of command in the British Expeditionary Force didn't have a precise picture. In the southern sectors past Fricourt again, there was a feeling of success between that village and Montauban to the east. And to the north of Fricourt, it was a very different story. Back home in Blighty, across the channel, no one yet knew what had happened. The last letters written by men who would never write home again were either just arriving or were still in transit to loved ones. It depended on when they had been written, as post took but two or three days to get from the battlefront to the home front. Cities like Accrington, Salford, and Sheffield, and many others, were as yet unaware that a generation of their boys lay bloody and broken in the fields of Picardy. For now, 
Families waited tensely for any news about the big push. We're going to leave it there for now. For further reading on the causes of the terrible casualties suffered by the British on the 1st of July, 1916, I would highly recommend the following books. The Psalm, The Darkest Hour on the Western Front by Peter Hart. Bloody Victory, The Sacrifice on the Psalm by William Philpott. And Command on the Western Front, The Military Career of Sir Henry Rawlinson, 1914 through 1918 by Robin Pryor and Trevor Wilson. These are books that I've used in uh, writing these episodes, and I highly, highly recommend them. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, please consider reviewing it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visible the podcast becomes, and that helps get more and more folks involved. Also, if you would like to help support the podcast with a financial contribution to help run and maintain it, there is a PayPal button right on the website where you can make a donation of your choice. The website is firstworldwarpodcast.com. I'd like to thank everyone who has contributed already. If you cannot contribute financially and still want to help, no worries. Consider doing a review on iTunes as reviews are as good as gold for the podcast. Leave a starred review if you're too busy to write. Don't worry, I totally understand about being busy. But even starred reviews help us keep moving on up. Any questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or hit me up through the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com or the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook or on Twitter at at WW1podcast. As always, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the BFWWP. Talk to you again soon. Take care.